How do you introduce yourself? I, I know the, the context matters, right? You, you, you introduce yourself differently to people um, depending on, on the context. You might say one thing at a party. You might say something else in a job interview. I think in job interviews, we tend to, to say those kind of flowery words. We say, you know, they, the question is, tell me something about yourself. And so we say, I'm driven or I'm passionate. We say hard worker, you know, all the things we hope will will help us to get that job. And maybe we're we're less truthful there. But but when when we're talking in different contexts, when we're writing our social media profile or when we're uh, introducing ourselves to other people, we typically go to either one of two places. We either talk about our relationships or we talk about um, what we do. So maybe we might say, well, I'm Roger's neighbor, um, and that's that's why I'm at this party. Or we might say, um, you know, I'm I'm uh, uh, Neil's Neil's dad, or I might say I'm Joe's grandson, or something like that. We might describe ourselves in terms of who we are. So we assume that they know this other person, and so we we talk about our relationships. The other thing we do, though, of course, is to talk about what we do. Maybe we talk about a hobby, or maybe we talk about um, our our job. And if we're retired, we talk about our last job or, you know, the job we liked best. So, so we typically talk about what we do and, and that's what the Apostle Paul does in our reading today. He, um, introduces himself by talking about a relationship he has and about what it is he does. And, um, we're gonna see that in a minute. We are, we are beginning a new conversation, uh, in the, in the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome and it's different from his other letters. If you're familiar with the Apostle Paul, you know that what he what he did was um, he uh, went around the Mediterranean world in the middle part of the first century, and every place he went, he planted a church. And then when he left that town, either because you know he needed to do something else or because they drove him out of town, you know the people, the authorities, or whatever, one way or the other, Paul would typically keep in touch with the, those churches by um, by correspondence. And we, we know that because some of that correspondence was preserved. People made copies of it, and then they began to circulate it. And then over the course of the next couple of centuries, it was included in what we now call the New Testament, the collection of documents called the New Testament. So Paul wrote about a quarter of the text of the New Testament, and it's all in the form of these letters. But the letter to the Romans is different. Because in all of the other letters, Paul is writing to people he knew, usually to churches that he founded. So he's writing to churches in Galatia or Thessalonica or Corinth or something. And he knows the people there. He knows, he, you know, he can put names to faces. He, he knows their situation. And usually he's writing in response to something that's going on there. Somebody showed up with a letter and told him, you know, there's this thing and it would be good if you could give us some guidance on that. That's not true in the case of Romans. In the case of Romans, Paul didn't know what was going on in Rome. He had never been to Rome. He had never been to that church or, or really even those churches. We don't know how many churches there were in Rome. And, and for all we know, Paul didn't know either. So Paul is just firing this, this letter off in the hopes that it will land in, in the churches in Rome and, um, and that they will be, uh, uh, they will then know that they will be informed about who he is. He will, he will have introduced himself and, um, what it is he knows about Jesus. So so that's his purpose in writing the letter. But like I said, it's different for that reason from the other letters that Paul writes. He is, he is introducing himself. And so so uh, what we will see is that Paul introduces himself in terms of the relationship and um, and uh, uh, what it is he does. Now, um, at the at the end of the letter, Paul Paul describes some people, he mentions some people that, that he's heard are in Rome. 
Now, it's not clear, does he know from any kind of personal correspondence with him or or because, you know, he's heard, you know, did you hear that, you know, he gets a letter and says, you know, Priscilla and Aquila went back to Rome. Did you know that? And so Paul Paul mentions some people that he's heard might be in Rome. Um, and, uh, you know, he he mentions some other people that he that he knows. And probably some of the people in Rome would have known about him. They would have heard something about Paul. But... Paul doesn't necessarily know what they know about him. Paul doesn't know what they've heard about him because he's never been there. And so he, he's in a situation where uh, there are people who have formed an impression of him, and so he's going to have to introduce himself to people who may already have some kind of an impression. They may have heard rumors about Paul. And so part of his, part of his goal is to help them see you know the real Paul and the real um, Jesus that that he is presenting. So, so that's the situation he's in. If you remember from some of the other letters that Paul writes, oftentimes there were controversies in the churches because because after Paul left, somebody else would come along and said, "No, no, no, Paul got it all wrong." And then Paul would write a letter, and there'd be these these situations. And so, for all he knows is those same people, his critics, have gone to Rome as well, and they've they've told people in Rome, "I don't pay any attention to Paul." So he's in that situation. He's got to introduce himself. But he doesn't really know what they think about him. And that's what makes this such a fascinating letter to us because, because Paul is writing it to people he doesn't know, people whose situations he doesn't know. He's, he's written the most general purpose letter that, that he has written. And so as we read it, we can, we can, um, think of it as something that's written to us much more than to the ones that talk about, you know, now concerning Fred, you know, we all know about Fred because we don't know about Fred. But in this letter, you know, he's he's really talking to a, a general purpose audience, and so he begins, like I said, with what most of us do. He begins um, by talking about a relationship he has. He says, "From Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus." So, so why does he begin like that? Well, he's beginning with a relationship. He's starting by saying, "Look, I'm nobody." You know, in the first century, forty or fifty percent of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. So he's saying nobody ever cares about slaves. Nobody asks their story. Nobody wants to hear them, you know, explain what's going on in their life because they're slaves. Nobody cares. He says, you don't care about me because I'm Paul. You care about me because who I work for. I'm nobody, but the guy I work for, there's nobody who's more important than my boss. Who is that? He says, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, uh, Paul Paul has helped us out here by putting the words in the order maybe we're not as familiar with. He said, Christ Jesus, to remind us, perhaps, that that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title, that he is the Christ. He is the Christ Jesus. He's, he's the Messiah. He's the anointed king that God had promised to send. Paul is a slave of the king. And you might you might imagine, this is kind of like being... The president's press secretary. No, nobody remembers them, right? I mean, maybe you know the current press secretary, right? But do you remember Obama's press secretary? Do you remember how many he had, right? I looked it up, and it's like, ah, oh, that's right. I remember that name, right? But the other two I didn't remember. So, so it's like no one, no one cares about the press secretary. They care about the person whose job it is for him to talk about. So, and really, that's a pretty good analogy of what Paul is, because he goes on and says. He's called to be an apostle and set apart for God's good news. In the first century, there wasn't a press. The printing press hadn't been invented, and um, there wasn't you know, any other technology. There was no TV or Internet or anything like that. So if you wanted to send your message out, you found somebody like Paul, and you appointed him to be 
your apostle, to be your the, the one you've sent out to tell whatever it is. And so he says, I've been called to be an apostle and set apart for God's good news. So he says, that's that's my job. I've told you who I work for, and now I'm telling you what my job is. My job is to be this kind of first century roving press secretary. So he says, um, I've been set apart to tell the good news. Now, what good news is this? He says, well, it's the good news that God promised about his son. God has promised good news about his son. Where did he do that? He promised it ahead of time through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The son was descended from David. And they go, oh, okay, all right. I remember my scriptures that there would be someone from the line of, of David who would, and it's like, oh, okay, so that's who we're talking about here. So, um, so some of his audience would have said, okay, all right, I know who you're talking about. And he says, and, and whether you know, whether you're familiar with the, the scriptures or not, um, he's also the same son is the one who is publicly identified as God's son through his resurrection from the dead, which was based on the spirit of holiness. This son is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he says, that son, we're talking about that son. And then he says, he's the one who gave me my job. Through him, we've received God's grace and our appointment to be apostles. Now, suddenly Paul, instead of talking about me, he's talking about us. And so, you know, who is we? This could be an editorial we, right? Or maybe Paul's referring to somebody who's who's with him, although he doesn't name him in the letter. Uh, but maybe he's just saying everybody else, all the other roving press secretaries, are are also in this situation. We've received God's grace and given this appointment to be God's apostle. So we don't know who he is, but he's certainly including himself in it. And he says, through him, um, so he says, this, the reason that I got this job, the reason Jesus gave me this job, is to bring all Gentiles to faithful obedience for his name's sake. So what does that mean? So Gentiles... Um, means non-Jews. It means anybody who's not a Jew is a Gentile. Uh, the the word means nation. And so basically, there's our nation, and then there's all the other nations. So he's saying, all of all of the Gentiles, and in other words, everybody, um, is is um, is to bring all of them to faithful obedience for His namesake. So what does that mean? What does faithful obedience mean? Faithful obedience is um, is saying um, that you have. Put your trust in God because, because, um, uh, uh, you, you trust God enough that you want to put into practice what God is, is teaching you. So, you know, if God says this, you trust God enough to say, all right, I'll try that. You know, if, if God says do this other thing, you trust God enough to say, well, it doesn't make any sense to me, but I'm going to give it a try. So that's faithful obedience is to say, I found somebody and so far, Everything he's told me has been trustworthy, so I'm going to do what he says. So that's faithful obedience. And he says um, he's called us to faithful obedience for his namesake. What he's saying there is that uh, if we do this, if we do that, if we if we demonstrate faithful obedience, then the results will be so impressive that God's reputation will improve. People will look at you and say, you know, you're not that smart. You're not that wise. You're not you're not that good. Right, I know you, and your something has changed. That it will actually reflect well on God. That if we put into practice the things God is teaching us, we will actually give God a better reputation. So He says that's that's His purpose is to tell the Gentiles this. And I think, and then He says, and and that's who I'm writing to. He says, you who are called by Christ Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ, are also included among those Gentiles. So His audience, He doesn't know who they are, He doesn't know their situation, but He's saying, whoever you are. You're included. And and because he's saying, whoever you are, he's talking to us. Paul is saying, whoever you are, 
you're part of this, that his role is to bring all the Gentiles, all the nations, into faithful obedience for his name's sake. So that's that's where he suddenly seems to remember, oh wait, I never finished the address label. I started in with I started in with who I am and what I do. And then I got so excited talking about the good news that that I'm authorized to go around and tell people. I got so excited, I forgot to to mention who I'm writing this letter to. And so he goes, oh, okay, yeah. Um, To those in Rome who are dearly loved by God and called to be God's people, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, okay, there, address label complete. Uh, Where was I? And we might think at this point, he's told us, he's told us, what his job is. He's told us who he is. He's nobody, but he works for somebody. And he says, he says, okay, my job is to tell you the good news about Jesus, about God's son. And he, which son is that? The son who was promised in scriptures, the one who is, who is identified publicly in his resurrection, the one who gave me my job, that son. But he still hasn't told us what the good news is. He hasn't told us what it is. And we might think, okay, well, now that, you know, the address label is done, Paul's back on track. He's going to tell us what the good news is. But instead, he spends the next uh, six or seven verses giving us his travel plans. And so I, I have skipped over that because we don't know whether he was um, successful in his travel plans or not. Um, uh, he certainly wound up in Rome at one point. We don't know how much other traveling he did. So um, so he, uh, he uh, tells them about his intentions to come to Rome at some point, and he does. But then finally, in verse 17, he says um, uh, that this is why he wants to go, he wants to tell the people in Rome. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is God's own power for salvation to all who have faith in God, to the Jew first and also the Greek. He says, this is the gospel. It is God's power for salvation to all who have faith in God, to the Jew first and also the Greek. So that's that's a can of worms. That that's That's basically enough for 16 chapters. And he's going to spend 16 chapters unpacking what that means. And so instead of talking about God's power for salvation, um, I'm just going to um, focus on the thing that he's already kind of introduced a little bit because he, he described his job. He said, he said, this is God's power for salvation, whatever that is, and we'll get to that. To all who have faith in God, to the Jew first and also the Greek. To the Jew first and, and the wider Greek-speaking world. That was kind of the trade language. Everybody knew a little bit of Greek. If you wanted to, to go to a store or something and they didn't know your language, they, you'd try out some Greek on them, you know. So, so he's saying everybody else to the Jews and also everybody else. It's the power for everybody. And today, I think the way we hear that, we hear it, it's, it's, um, salvation for all who have faith in God. I think today what we hear that is exclusively. We hear that as God only provides his power for salvation to the people who believe in him. I think the, the way our modern ears hear this is this is something where there's this condition that God has his power, but only for some, some people, that only, only some people get this, the ones who believe in God. But in the first century, they would have heard it exactly backwards. It would have been exactly the opposite. They would have heard this as God makes his power for salvation available to anybody, anybody at all, Jews first, but also Greeks, anybody at all who believes in him. It's that easy. If you trust that God can do it, there, you're saved. 
you know, you don't have to know how, you don't have to, you know, do any rituals, you don't have to, you know, do something to get on God's good side. It's that easy. If you believe God can save you, and if you don't, why do you care? If you believe God can save you, he can. It's that simple. That's what Paul is saying. And that's the way they heard it in the first century. And we, the, the, the reason we know that is they kept this letter. They made copies of it and they circulated it and they passed it around and it did eventually become part of our, our, um, New Testament. They heard this introduction, this, this basic, um, uh, laying out of, of the gospel and its significance and they said, wow, that really changes the way I've thought about things. But, but Paul says, um, the problem is that Remember, it's people who trust God. And, and there's, a, there's an obvious question. People would say, well, wait a minute. How can we trust God if he's changed the rules on us? If suddenly this thing that we thought was only available to some people is now available to everybody. We thought it was only available to the insiders. And now you're telling us, Paul, that it's available to everybody, even the outsiders. You know, how can we, how can we put our, our, our faith, how can we trust somebody who changes the rules? This is the question that Paul anticipates, and he says, "He says no. That I realize that I, the, the 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 saving power of God depends on trust, and so God is not one who changes the rules. He says God's righteousness is being revealed in this gospel. That it may seem as if God's changed the rules, but actually, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the 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 glad tidings, it is being revealed in this." He says, from faithfulness for faith, from, from God's own faithfulness to inspire, to engender trust in other people. The reason we can trust God is because He's demonstrated He's, He's faithful. The reason we can, we can put our, our trust, uh, our faith in God is because He's demonstrated that He's trustworthy. So He's not changing the rules. He says, this is exactly what I was talking about. The Son who was promised in the, in the, um, in the, Scriptures, he says, as it is written. So, and he begins the, the the letter already. He's already quoting quoting the scriptures. He's quoting from the prophet Habakkuk, who wrote six hundred years earlier. He's saying, you you remember this this verse, right? The righteous person will live by faith. He's saying the people that God saves, the people that God declares not guilty, the people that God lets off the hook, will do so. They will live, not by what they did. But by faith, he's saying this has been God's plan all along. God has not changed the rules, but God has made it clear what he was doing. And as a result, the the good news is available to everyone. The Jews first, they, they heard it centuries ago. Now they understand it in a different light, perhaps. But it's been available to them this time, and now it's available to everybody else, too. So that's what Paul says. And... The Romans heard this and they were persuaded by it. And they made the copies and this became part of the scriptures. And it's just as true for us as it was for them. Paul didn't know who he was writing to. He didn't know their situation. He didn't know their story any more than he knows your story. But he said, either way, whatever whatever's going on in your life, whatever you've been told, this is a promise that's available to you. And if you have not put your trust in Jesus, hold on to this. Hold on to this, because it will still be true when God demonstrates his faithfulness in a way that persuades you, that that gives you faith, that tells you, yes, it is safe to lean my life against God's promises because God is trustworthy. And if you have, 
if you consider yourself a Jesus follower, if you are trying to put this into practice, if you're trying to be um, a person who, who models their life after what Jesus teaches, then really the only question is, is what do we do with this? What, what do we do with this? Now, you might think, you know, your job is to go out and be like Paul and tell everybody about it, but, but I think only a few people have the gift of evangelism. That, that most people are not called to go, you know, leave home and go plant churches all around the Mediterranean, write letters that become scripture. I think only a few people get that calling. But our calling, if we call ourselves Jesus followers, is to be like that church in Rome. To ask, so who's missing? Who's not here? To say, God is out there. God is doing stuff in people's lives. God is proving himself trustworthy in people's lives. And when they come to this church, do we accept them? Or do we say, you're an outsider? See, we're the insiders, and you are the outsiders. And the only way to know if we're doing that, you know, we can say, well, I don't mean to, but the only way to know for sure is by looking around and saying, who's missing? To ask the question, well, is this good news for them? Paul says it is. So, imagine. Imagine if we could be the kind of church that the Roman church was. Imagine if we could trust God so completely that when outsiders showed up, when people who didn't know the rules and, and didn't know, didn't know anything, they were outsiders, if they showed up and we could welcome them as completely as the church in Rome did, the Roman church changed the world. What became, what started out as an underground religion became the religion of the empire in 300 years. They changed the world by putting into practice what Paul told them was the truth. Imagine how we could change our world if we learned the lesson that Paul teaches here. Let's pray. Loving God, Thank you for this teaching from Paul. Thank you for loving outsiders, because we were all outsiders once. Lord, I pray that you would be at work in the lives of people who do not know you. You would be demonstrating your trustworthiness to them in a way that makes them put their trust in you. And Lord, for those of us who seek to serve you, Lord, help us to know ways that we can be welcoming, that we can we can embrace the outsider the way that we were once embraced when we were outsiders. We pray all these things in the name of the one who is changing the world, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.